Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Basic bank accounts for all, but will they make existing current accounts more expensive? Turmoil in Russia, elections in Japan, should you invest in either country? And two years after big changes to the rules, are people really getting better financial advice? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you the lowdown on this week's money news in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues Emma Dunkley and Judith Evans, plus a special studio guest, Darius McDermott of Chelsea Financial Services. This week, the Treasury laid out details of a basic bank account that nine high street banks are to provide on a voluntary basis by the end of 2015. Well, that's a nice Christmas present, isn't it, from our cuddly banks? Well, not quite. According to the Treasury's Select Committee, this announcement is coming a year later than it should have done. And banks would have had to do this in any case as part of the Payment Accounts Directive from Brussels makes access to basic banking services a fundamental right by 2016. Consumer groups and anti-poverty campaigners have long complained that those on lower incomes lose out by not having access to bank accounts. The inability to pay using direct debits, for instance, means they are often on the most expensive gas and electricity tariffs. Step Change, the debt charity, says the poorest people in society pay up to 10% more for basic services. But if banks are obliged to provide more services to what for them are less profitable customers, what does that mean for the rest of us? Emma Dunkley, the FT's retail banking correspondent, has been digging into the detail. Emma, first of all, what is a basic bank account? What sort of services does that include? Basic bank accounts are really designed for those people, as you said, who are on low incomes or perhaps have poor credit histories um, who cannot otherwise access a typical bank account. The main difference being is that they don't offer checks or overdrafts with the aim of being that they don't allow these customers to get further into debt and, and further ruin their credit history. However, until now, these accounts haven't been completely free. So often there are fees charged that can be as high as £30 if, for example, a standing order or direct debit payment doesn't go through and bounces. So this has been quite unfair for a lot of people who have ended up having to pay this £30 charge. And if they fail to pay these fees, they, they can go higher, so they end up further in debt. So some MPs have argued that this has effectively locked out people from bank accounts. So are they going to say that... that 
charges are banned? They'll stop these one-off charges, which means people can access basic bank services, such as um, going into a branch and accessing services over the counter, withdrawing cash from ATMs and making payments via direct debits or standing orders, knowing that they won't have these high um, one-off fees levied if a payment bounces, for example. Now, banks are under a lot of pressure uh, on other fronts. Uh, There's a probe into overdraft charges, another one into teaser savings rates, and now they're being told they must offer basic bank account facilities at at effectively no cost. Does that threaten the whole sort of system of cross-subsidy that underpins retail banking? It does insofar as banks often take the money that they gain from levying high charges upon uh, overdrafts and unauthorised overdrafts, for example, in order to help fund the um, other current accounts that they provide. So the fact that they now have to provide these free accounts means it will be at an added cost to the bank. And this comes at a time when banks are desperately trying to cut their costs overall. There's also increased scrutiny by the regulator upon uh, so-called packaged accounts, which are a form of cross-subsidy in themselves. Um, Banks tend to offer these current accounts with loans uh, and insurance products um, tacked onto the side. But um, this has come under a lot of scrutiny from the Financial Conduct Authority because sometimes these insurance products can cost hundreds of pounds a year and some customers have complained that some of these are potentially being missold. Where's all that going to lead then? Presumably they'll have to either cut costs uh, by, for instance, closing branches or they'll have to increase charges somewhere else, which could mean the end of free banking, could it? Yes, there is concern that current accounts will soon have charges levied upon them so people will have to pay for them, such as they do with the Santander 123 account. And this has caused quite a a divide in the industry in in terms of opinion because while, for example, the Santander 123 account is very popular, other banks argue that um, customers won't want to have to pay for basic current accounts and that, in fact, it's perhaps arguably more competitive to have a free current account market. And finally, Emma, there was uh, some news for the post office this week, which does provide uh, basic bank accounts uh, in in the sense that the the card account is going to be uh, given a new lease of life. Is that right? Yes. So the government has just agreed a £250 million deal to extend the existence of the card account for another seven years until 2021, which um, helps to provide a basic account for pensioners, for example, offering them basic banking services um, and the ability to go to the post office to actually pick up their pension physically and collect it from over the counter. So this has also been lauded as a move that is sort of in lockstep with the whole offering of basic bank accounts to help the people in the UK that are currently unbanked. Thanks very much, Emma. Still to come on the show, financial advice may be better these days, but are fewer people benefiting from it? First, though, let's look overseas. At the weekend, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe won re-election by a large margin having called a snap poll a few weeks earlier. He wants a fresh mandate for his package of economic reforms, often known as Arbonomics. These entail huge amounts of monetary stimulus to rekindle inflation, along with structural reform among Japanese government ministries and companies. Meanwhile, over in Russia, a falling oil price and Western sanctions are playing havoc with the economy. The ruble has halved against the dollar this year, and the stock market has slumped. The Russian central bank has jacked interest rates up to 17%, but the rot shows no sign of stopping. Russian shares, however, are now ludicrously cheap. So, the question is, are either of these markets worth investing in? Joining me to discuss is Darius McDermott of Chelsea Financial Services. Darius, welcome to The Money Show. Uh, Let's start with Russia. 
Uh, Lord Rothschild once said that you should buy when there's blood on the streets, and Warren Buffett always used to say, well, be greedy when others are fearful. So with both the currency and the stock market in Russia now practically on the floor, is now the moment to be investing there? I, I think those adages do hold true, and I think Russia very much fits that category today. I mean, frankly, Russia is a bit of a basket case, as you've already identified. Both the stock market and the currency have had a terrible time, particularly this week. Um, but this is all down to the oil price. And I suppose if one was to contemplate investing in Russia today, you would have to be at least confident of a reversal in the oil price. Maybe not back to the historic levels from where it started, a fall of $110, but certainly something substantially north of the high 50s, early 60s as it sits at the moment. It really is extremely high risk because what we've seen in markets like this is even though they're very bad, is occasionally they do get even worse. And I think if you were negative on the oil price, I'd certainly probably wait and see for another week, 10 days to see if there is any stability. You might miss the very bottom of a bounce, but even though Russia has big reserves, there is a, a growing chance that it might end up defaulting on its debt. And then I think that would be the entry point rather than where we sit today. If you were feeling very brave and very adventurous and comfortable with those uh, very substantial risks, how would you go about doing it? There aren't that many Russian funds out there, are there? Often one can get access to markets via exchange-traded funds or, or passives. In this instance, really, the, the only vehicle that, that I would contemplate using is the Neptune Russia and Greater Russia Fund. You are getting a bit of value-added fund management over the top, and I know they have been positioned in what they would call the quality Russian businesses, the quality supermarket providers, quality banks that are most likely to do better than the, the, the dramatic falls in the Russian stock market. OK, let's turn to Japan then. The brief history here, I guess, is that there was a massive stock and property boom in the 1980s, followed by an almighty bust, and then years of deflation and anemic growth and sporadic attempts at reform. And then along came Shinzo Abe in late uh, 2012, I think it was. What happened next? Well, the one thing which you've sort of alluded to is that during that period of deflation is Japan suffered terrible politics. And what Abe has done is he has set out a set of policies which are now being backed by the Japanese people. So even though he called a snap election, as you rightly point out, he won it convincingly. The path that he appears to be taking at least now appears popular with the Japanese people and gives him a mandate to, to, to finally get on and, and potentially make some of the more challenging reforms required for the Japanese economy. One of the main planks of Arbonomics is, is QE, effectively, is using a central bank newly created money to buy assets and to try and rekindle inflation. Now, that's very good for the stock market, isn't it? And you presumably expect that to continue. Before the election, Abe, via the Bank of Japan, announced not only more QE, but faster and more QE. And, you know, the recent history has taught us that where um, markets are subjected to QE is they tend to be inflationary, at least on an asset basis. So stock markets have gone up in Japan. And I think with the increased QE, we might expect them to go up again um, in, in the following sort of 12, 24 months. QE, great for stock markets, but of course, it's very bad for the for the currency. It makes the yen uh, weaker. Uh, and given that if you buy a Japan fund, it's going to be buying Japanese companies whose shares are priced in yen. Is there a danger that you, uh, whatever you make on the stock market, you lose on the currency depreciation? I mean, absolutely, that it, that is definitely a danger. But it does, I think, just bear pointing out that the yen has devalued about 35-40% versus the dollar this year that has made their exporters far more attractive already. 
and you're quite right, QE does lead to sort of currency weaknesses. Actually, it was one of the things they were trying to do. So they have achieved that. Most of the people I speak to wouldn't expect substantial yen deterioration from, from these levels, but it is, of course, still possible with the massive QE they're going to do. Um, most funds that one can buy now actually have a hedged share class, which means you would get access to the stock market performance, but without having the currency hurt you. Can you name a few that you particularly like? The Japanese markets tend to come in sort of two parts. If we like sort of more larger cap and the value style, the GLG Japan Core Alpha is a favoured fund. And if you think that actually the Japanese um, smaller companies are going to do well, we quite like Leg Mason Japan. It is extremely volatile fund, I might point out. But that also now has a head share class and um, has made really very positive returns over the last three and five years for investors prepared to take that greater level of risk. Uh, during the sort of period you alluded to in the noughties where um, Japan's politics was terrible, uh, its companies during that time were uh, very, very cheap. Uh, is that still the case now? And, and are we seeing the sort of structural corporate reform that, that we want in Japan? Yeah, I mean, it's actually really quite difficult, I think, to say when Japan is cheap or fairly valued because we had this huge boom that you mentioned in your introduction to Japan in the late 80s and 90s, and that distorts what an average valuation might be. I think the way I would tend to look at it is with the support of QE, with the weakening of the currency, and these small but subtle changes that they are beginning to make to structural reforms, I I think it's difficult to say that Japan is in any way expensive, and I I would think as far as sort of developed equity markets goes, this one looks to have one of the most support for it over the next 12 months. That said, Japan still has structural problems. They have terrible demographics, huge debt to GDP. So it's certainly not plain sailing, but I think the QE probably, with the stronger politics now, allows us to think that actually valuations are are on the attractive side. Thanks very much, Darius. There's plenty more about the turmoil in Russia and the elections in Japan on FT.com. Plus, you can find more detail about some of those Japan funds Darius mentioned on our funds data site, which is supported by Morningstar data. Just type funds.ft.com into your web browser. There's no need for the www. On to our final item for today. At the end of 2012, the city regulator introduced a raft of new regulations known as the Retail Distribution Review, or RDR. The culmination of about six years of planning, these rules were intended to raise the standard of financial advice and improve transparency. Crucially, they sought to remove the commission bias from the whole advice process. In practical terms, that meant financial advisers could no longer accept commission payments from product providers and instead had to charge clients up front for their services in just the same way that a lawyer or an accountant would. The changes were controversial. In particular, many argued that less moneyed clients would become unprofitable for advisers and would simply be abandoned. Others argued that the reforms did not go far enough and that ideally separate bodies should regulate the advice and product industries. The regulator is now in the process of reviewing the impact of RDR and this week it published an interim report, which Judith Evans has been reading. Judith, perhaps not surprisingly, the Financial Conduct Authority is quite pleased with itself, isn't it? Well, that's right. The FCA was particularly aiming to eliminate what's called commission bias, and they say that they've seen clear evidence that this is happening. Previously, some popular products offered high commissions. These included things like unit-linked bonds. Um, There were also a number of scandals associated with exotic products playing high commissions. 
They've now said that they're seeing higher sales of products that have never paid any commissions like tracker funds and investment trusts, and that meanwhile unit-linked bonds with profits bonds are on the decline. So they're pleased with that. They're also pleased, they say, that advisors have really welcomed the requirement that they educate themselves a lot more, and a lot of them are going actually beyond what's now required of them by the regulator. And what about this issue of the the advice gap, this idea that that lots of people will no longer be able to afford financial advice or that their advisors uh, won't really be interested in providing it to them? Well, there seem to be mixed reports on this. A report commissioned by the FCA actually found that there were more advisors in the market at the moment than there is demand for. There are 30,000 and it said that only about 25,000 were needed. But that doesn't mean, of course, that everyone who might need advice is being reached. And I think um, although they said it's early days, there are still concerns around less wealthy investors and whether they're going to be able to get the services they need. This may be solved, actually, when the regulator brings in new rules around what we call simplified advice, which can either consist of a short session with an advisor or online tools. A lot of people believe that this is really going to help those smaller investors. Now, if my um, daughters marked their own homework, uh, they would, of course, give themselves 10 out of 10 uh, every time. Uh, The FCA has effectively looked at its own work here. But what have other people been saying? What about the advice industry or or the sort of consumer groups or even um, politicians to whom the, the FCA ultimately reports? There was some scepticism from um, the Financial Services Consumer Panel, whose job is to lobby the FCA on behalf of consumers. This was particularly about costs and charges, which is becoming a huge issue in the investment industry. They're saying that it's impossible for investors to know the underlying costs of their investments and that therefore the changes that have been made don't really go far enough. Within the advice industry, likewise, you've got some campaigning advisors who say that advisors themselves need to be much clearer about their costs. And indeed, this is one of the things that the FCA itself identified, that it needs to make really clear to customers what, in pounds and pence, they're likely to end up paying. Yeah, it singled out wealth managers, didn't it, for particular criticism on that front? That's right. And wealth managers do show their clients what's called rate cards with examples of what they're charging, but they're often expressed as percentages and it can be hard to get a grip on what that really means. And they said that really quite a high proportion of wealth managers, at least half, are not showing clear pounds and pence examples. So it looks like they're going to have to up their game on that one. Is that the same as saying um, that advice has got more expensive after these reforms? Well, I think it's early days, but the regulator says there is some evidence that advice has got more expensive. We've always paid for it, of course, but just through commissions on products. Um, But now a lot of advisors are charging a mixture of different types of fees, and the early evidence seems to point to those, including hourly fees, service fees, ongoing fees, adding up to more than people were paying before, which is a shame because if advisors are haggling for lower fees on investments but then charging more themselves, the net result is not likely to be very different. And aside from the disclosure of uh, charges, are there any other areas that the FCA or um, uh, other bodies have, have identified as being sort of ripe for improvement? Another area that the FCA mentioned is the distinction between independent advice and restricted. Restricted advisors only offer products from a panel of providers rather than from the entire market. Um, And the regulator, I think, is anxious that people should understand what that means and the difference between going to one of those and an independent advisor. They're also concerned about the question of an ongoing service. 
a lot of advisors have chosen to charge their customers a percentage fee um, across time of their investments. And the SEA is very clear that they therefore need to provide an ongoing service. And that doesn't just mean a yearly statement through the post. Judith, thank you very much. So we're getting better advice from better qualified advisors, but it's costing more. As my dad would say, you get what you pay for. By the way, you can look for a financial advisor near you using the Find an IFA tool on our website. Just go to ft.com forward slash money and click on the tools and calculators link. This weekend's FT Money is all about the outlook for next year. Savings and mortgage rates look set to stay low, but the general election in May could have a big impact on pensions, property and taxation. Merrin's got some seasonal book ideas for you, while David Stevenson returns to biotech, a 1990s preoccupation of his. It's the last issue of FT Money for this year, and this is also the final Money Show of 2014. We hope you've enjoyed the Money Show this year, and we'll be back the week of the 6th of January. In the meantime, we'd like to wish all our readers and listeners a happy Christmas. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.